I still regret uh, when I was little, I had the Shira Princess of Power electric toothbrush, which came with this whole <laughs> castle set around it. And then when you turned it on, it would go, <laughs> so you couldn't you had to be familiar with what she was saying to actually know what it was doing yeah, but it was yeah, just yeah. I absolutely stood in front of my parents bathroom mirror and like held my toothbrush aloft and shouted for the honor of Grayskull many times and I miss that I don't have it anymore I'm Derek Tronsgaard and you are listening to Alter Guild This season on the podcast, we're talking all about what's at our core, the things, the relationships, people, and identities that make us who we are. And for me, one of the things that's always been a part of who I am is the fact that I am a nerd, a huge nerd. And so for this episode, I invited Matt Fleming and Emmy Kegler, who are also nerds, to come and talk about it. We had a lot of fun with this conversation. The recording session actually ended up being almost two hours long. We had a lot of great stuff that had to be cut to fit into the 20 minutes or so for the episode, and it really turned out to be a fun and enlightening conversation. For those of you who are nerds, I hope you feel like you are in good company. And for those of you who aren't nerds, I still think there's a lot of great stuff that Emmy and Matt brought to the table. I think you're going to find some grace, some wisdom, and humor in our conversation. So what other, what other um, nerd stories or media are you, would you consider yourself a fan? Oh yeah, so absolutely Star Wars, um, the originals. What's your Star Wars story? What's my Star Wars? And uh, a friend of mine in community theater introduced me to the re-release. Okay. So when they cut and they had special editions. Yeah, special yeah. editions. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we went and saw in the th- we went and saw the re-releases in the theaters. And then we were super jazzed for the prequels. Like, oh my gosh, this is going to be amazing. And Ewan McGregor is so hot. I mean, I wasn't into Ewan McGregor, but I ass- yeah. Everybody else was. So okay. For me, definitely, looking back, I did not attach to the prequels at all because the only female character of any real strength is Padme, and she just decreases in importance yeah, over the trajectory of the film. I've never thought of that before. Like, she, in the first film, she's she's a <laughs> badass because she's, like, taking control, and she's only, you know, a teenager, yeah, and she's ruling yeah. this whole land and making all these decisions and handling this political machination. And then, over time, she just becomes less and less important as Palpatine rises to power. And then, in the third film, she's just, like... She's just Anakin's woman in a refrigerator. Well, she does yeah. come out of the spaceship to be choked, and then she cries, and then she dies. Right, and I hate it. I've never Ugh. thought of that before, but that's yeah. a really interesting take. So on there's it. just nothing for me. Like as a woman watching the movie, I'm just like, yeah. there's nothing. I wasn't conscious of this when I was, yeah. you know, 14, 15, 16. But like, there's nothing for me to envision myself into. Yeah. So, so what else? I mean, Harry Potter, yeah, obviously. Okay, talk about that. I don't know. I think got introduced to book three and then had to go back and read through one and two and experience that in a total vacuum. I didn't go online and find, you know, the Harry Potter fandom and I didn't, I wasn't on, we didn't have Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. So I was just reading the books on my own and just like, these are really great, but I don't have anybody to talk to about them because they're books about magic and wizards and everyone who's into magic and wizards is a nerd. Mm-hmm. 
And I had at that point like desegmented from my friends who were into X Files, and mm-hmm. so I had no nerds to process it with. So, at that point in your life, had you sort of shunned the nerd label, or were like distancing yourself from it, or? I think I was just trying to avoid it. Like yeah. I, I was weird enough, and I didn't want to like really sh- stick myself in the weird category. Yeah. And we had a large enough high school that we had you know nerds over here, and then like the academic kids over here, and there wasn't mm-hmm. really a lot of. There was some overlap, but there was definitely a distinction. Yeah. And so I wanted to be more in the academic preppy crowd. Yep. Even though that was just that, that was more of an in, like a social clout than actual what fit with me. Yeah. Like I should have just stayed with the nerds. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I was I was lucky. So in my high school, I went to a small private Lutheran school and um we had 53 kids in our graduating class oh, and wow. so it it was crazy and I think it was a unique experience so when I was in high school it was the Lord of the Rings movies that were coming out yeah because mm. um, it was like late no, I guess early 2000s and what was really interesting is the whole football team was like so into those and I played football so for me it was never it, yeah it's it's, it's crazy because you know but but for me it was never being a nerd was a label that I could always claim for myself and never mm. have any social repercussions for it. Uh, so I think just, that's an incredible privilege, right? Yes, you've uh, blown my mind on all of yeah. my concepts about small town football teams. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which I grew up in big big suburbs. So. Yeah. Also, like the um, the baggage of religious communities too, because Harry Potter was mm. the first um, the first thing that I risked pushing against um, my family and saying, no, I'm going to read this regardless. Because the reason I didn't play uh, Dungeons and Dragons was because my grandma said I was going to go to hell, right? Like, um, and so... Uh, it was but the gateway with, drug to Satanism. Even well, exactly, right? Yeah, right? Course, you know, like, it, yeah, it's, you're, it's a slippery slope, you know? Um, it's Dungeons and Dragons and demons. Yes. Yes, yeah. yeah. You're playing with the occult and we don't mess with that, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but Harry Potter, I remember my grandma saying, you shouldn't read that. You shouldn't read that. Garbage in, garbage out you know, whatever. Um, but, uh, but I risked it because I, I, I found it valuable and I got drawn into the story in the same mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Um, like you were talking about that it took on a religious significance for me. Um, yeah. So as you think about yourself now and your, you know, who you are and, and what's at your core and all of that, I mean, is, is nerd a label that you would claim now? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so what changed? I think I just got to a point um, in the middle of seminary where denying core parts of myself was becoming toxic mm-hmm. rather than worthwhile. Yeah. I definitely moved into a time where my nerd, dumber geekery, and I essentially use those terms interchangeably, uh, was underground because I was trying to be, you know, kind of a cooler preppy kid. And it took me 12 or so years to come back to that and really start appreciating, like, oh, you know what, I can actually enjoy the things that I want to enjoy without feeling like there's something wrong with me. And I do think the success of Harry Potter was instrumental in doing that, in bringing nerdery and geekdom out of the sort of, you know, even even when nerds were sort of in power, right? When you have this, like the Revenge of the Nerds movies and that trajectory in the late 90s and early zeros of like nerddom becoming powerful in some way. And like, these are the people who are going to be running your, they're going to be your CEOs. They're going to be designing your computers. You should be nice to them. I felt like Harry Potter moved into a whole nother sector in which everyone in the culture was participating in it. And that was really transformative to say like, oh my gosh, you can actually be passionate about fictional stories in a way that 
we haven't seen on a cultural scale Mm -hmm. prior. And, you know, there's actually a really interesting history behind it. Um, So about 10 years ago, I read this book called American Nerd by a guy named Ben Nugent. Have you guys heard of it or read it? (laughs) It's super fascinating. But basically what he does is he sort of charts the trajectory of the history of this subculture, looking back, like, how did it start and all this kind of stuff. And interestingly, you know, this is a shock and this is a church podcast, which is why we're doing this episode, but it starts because of the church. And it's sort of a negative reaction. So basically, the story starts in Victorian England. So, you know, height of the British Empire, Mm -hmm. Industrial Revolution, Mm -hmm. Charles Dickens, smokestacks, all of that kind of stuff. Great. And there was this book series that came out called Tom Brown's School Days. And have you never heard of it? Never heard of it? Okay. Mm -hmm. So this was a book series that just caught the public imagination, probably like Harry Potter did for our generation. I mean, this this book series just took mm-hmm. off. And what the book was about was about this guy who went to an English boarding school, and he was a total jock. And this was even before they had, like, the idea of what a jock was. This is kind of where it started. So he was a rugby player. He was super strong, super masculine. Like, he would protect all of the little guys that were getting picked on at the school, and it was sort of this virtue story that they would give to kids to say, like, you should be like this. If you're, if you're a dude living in Victorian England, you should be like this guy. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is it really captured the public's imagination because at the time, this is the height of the, the British Empire. And so they need guys like that to go out and spread the empire. They mm-hmm. need these strong, burly, masculine guys. And so in the public imagination, there, there started to be this thing called muscular Christianity which was essentially that, that the ideal man, a man of virtue and Christian character, was strong, courageous, athletic, you know, would, would just go out and fight and all, all this kind of stuff. Mm. And because it started in England, it also took on a Protestant sort of identity. Mm-hmm. And so this was the ideal of what a Protestant man should look like. Well, interestingly enough, it actually travels overseas, and the biggest American that we know that was all into this was Teddy Roosevelt. Right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, if you see a picture of him, he actually kind of looks like a nerd because he's got the little round glasses and mm-hmm. stuff. But if you know anything about Teddy Roosevelt, he totally bought into this. Mm-hmm. The yeah. Rough Riders, um, wrestling bears. One time he jumped off a waterfall. My favorite Teddy Roosevelt story was one time he was giving a speech as president. Have you guys heard this before? Mm-hmm. And he gets shot in mm-hmm. the chest. And then no. he says, he goes, I believe I've just been shot. And then he like finishes the speech before he yeah, goes he to the hospital. Yeah, he keeps going. <laughs> like he was crazy. But he was the epitome of this ideal of muscular Christianity. Okay. Right. And yeah. he's also really involved with like cultivating the wilderness, right? And right. both yes. conquering it, like reaching all of the right. edges of it, but then protecting it. So yeah. there's that balance of like yeah. strength, but preservation of the weak. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so what's really interesting then is this idea of muscular Christianity takes hold in the American mm. psyche and in the American church as well. And so this is where like the YMCA comes from. Like, have you ever wondered why there's a the gym? Dance? Young men's <laughs> Christian. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, this is sort of when all this stuff comes about. Okay. Mm. But what gets interesting is all of the waspy Ivy League schools has all of these, you know, white Protestant guys that are all these macho men trying to be like Teddy Roosevelt and Tom Brown from this book and all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, 
as they do, immigrants start coming. Mm-hmm. Okay? And a lot of the immigrants, the first place they go is New York City. Mm-hmm. Ellis Island, that, that whole deal. And because... In New York City, if you've been there, you know there's no football fields in the middle of the neighborhoods or <laughs> rugby pitches or anything. They are really intellectually inclined, and that's how they get into all of the colleges. Mm. And so as the immigrant populations start increasing in all of the Ivy League schools, there becomes this divide between the rough, burly, Protestant white guys mm-hmm. and these immigrant intellectuals. And so this negative stereotype starts coming out of the nerd. Now, they don't call it that at the time, Mm -hmm. but, like, you can go back, and in the book, Ben Nugent talks about this, you can go back, and in all of the magazines and stuff of the era, there's always this, like, stereotype of, you know, um, I'm an intellectual with the big glasses and, like, the pocket protector and all all that kind of stuff. And it started out as, like, this anti-immigrant sentiment because they were competing for the same spots that, that all these, you know, Harvard gigs and stuff. And then what's really interesting, I, th- I think this is so cool, um, the person who actually invents the word nerd is Dr. Seuss. <laughs> there's, a, there's a book called If I Ran the Zoo. I don't know if you guys have read yeah. it. There's a creature in the zoo called a nerd. That's right. And that is the I... first time that people can tell that someone used the word nerd. Now, That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't apply to like what we thought of as a nerd. But right. then, of course, that word kind of picks up in the slang, and then eventually, um, you know, the image of the nerd is born. And then when it really takes off is in the 70s on Saturday Night Live, there's this sketch with Gilda Radner and Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really old school, but it's kind of funny. You can go on YouTube and watch it. But they were called the nerds, and, you know, Basically, that was it. So that's in the 70s. That's what brought it to the masses. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of the story of how this subculture was born is it was against the ideals of what Protestant Christianity should be. So here we are sitting, making our forefathers very upset and ashamed that we've bought into this. But uh... This is so fascinating because I come out of an immigrant family. Um, So my grandfather came over in 1910 and came through Ellis Island and then worked his way up in stockyards and in blue collar, like backbreaking work. His um, uncle was like a stone cutter, like literally had a sledgehammer in limestone and granite quarries and broke things open all day. So this idea of somehow marrying the like intellectual capacity with the physical strength as the Mm. sort of the waspy pinnacle of manhood is so interesting because it shuts out either side of immigrants right if you don't if you're if you're masculine and strong but you're not smart that becomes then our our parody of a jock almost right like you're 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 a brute yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah and then you know if you're if you're an intelligent but you're weak then that gets sidelined into the nerd yeah, yeah. so they're really interesting yeah hmm You know, one of the core things that nerdery geekdom has done for me and my faith is that the way that I love Harry Potter and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and um, Xena is a, has become a model for me to love scripture. Yeah. Because we can't and we, we disappoint ourselves if we expect them to be perfect, right? Like the further seasons go on, the more things fall off the map. Or you get prequels and they're terrible. You get sequels and you object to them. And 
that has been such a metaphor for me for dealing with scripture, which is not, you know, handed down perfectly, but we know just factually and academically is designed and develops over several hundred years. What does it mean for me to say, like, I don't like Joss Whedon as he is now because his feminism hasn't progressed since 1993, but I love what he did with Buffy and I love what that did in that context. Can I say the same thing for the scriptures? Like, mm. no, I probably wouldn't be buddy-buddy with Paul if he popped in from 2,000 years ago, but can I love what he was doing at that time yeah. because of the context it was in? Nice. I think for me, too, the um, occupying the space of... Um, um, not resistance, but like um, otherness as a nerd growing up kind of throughout at different, at varying and different points in my life um, has been really instructive for me as um, uh, a Christian and as a man, because the opposite are the assumptions of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think what, what uh, claiming the nerd label in various times in my life has um, has given me is um, a small and tiny taste um, uh, of of in, of being in that space, and then and then of saying as a Christian that it is my job to do that more often, and the stories too. I mean, the, learning how to tell a story and and consume a story and participate in a story. Um, yeah, I learn way more from from movies, from comic books, from video games than I do from uh, most preachers. If I'm being really honest, (laughs) (laughs) sometimes I feel, well, 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 the reason that that I'm a pastor, the reason that Christianity is a part of who I am is, again, because of that story, right? The story that there's this God that created the universe that's that's a being of unconditional love, and so, therefore, that God becomes human and incarnates into the world, and you know the story, right? Mm-hmm. Like Sounds to me, familiar. Yeah. yeah, we've heard it a couple of times. <laughs> I mean, for me, that's that's paramount. But what's interesting is some of those other stories probably have just as much significance as Scripture does. If I'm being really honest, mm-hmm. that's totally fair. And and what's really interesting is um, there was this time. So I, all of us are pastors, and you guys know this. But when you become a Lutheran pastor, you have to go um, on internship for a year. And so I got sent to Seattle, and while I was in Seattle, they had what's called the Emerald City Comic Con. It's one of the biggest co- comic book conventions in the world um, after, like, New York and San Diego. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some in Europe or something, but this is a huge one. Anyway, so they had Stan Lee there, and I oh love Marvel gosh. Comics, and this was about 10 years ago, so I went because I wanted to see Stan Lee. But in order to see Stan Lee, you had to get a seat in the convention hall, so that meant I had to sit through all of the other presenters, Okay. Mm-hmm. And so the guy that presented right before Stan Lee was Leonard Nimoy, who played Spock in Star Trek. And and I like Star Trek. You know, Mm -hmm. I was familiar with it, but it's not like my favorite. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I knew who Spock was and all that kind of stuff. But the people that were in the convention hall, like, this was their religion. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget this. Because Leonard Nimoy comes out, and the first thing he wants to do, he doesn't want to talk about Star Trek. He wants to talk about his photography and his poetry and all of his little side projects. Mm. And the people are just loving it. It was really, (laughs) really nice. And then after a while, they do the whole thing where it's like, okay, we're going to open it up for questions, and you can come up here and ask Leonard Nimoy a question. And so they open the mic. But what was interesting is people didn't ask questions. They got up there, and the first guy, I'll never forget this, the first guy says, Mr. Nimoy... Um, I was deployed overseas in Afghanistan. A roadside bomb went off, 
and I spent six months in recovery, recovering from my injuries. What got me through was Star Trek, and I just mm-hmm. want to thank you for that, okay? And then everyone claps, and everyone's like feeling warm and fuzzy. And then another person comes up, and she says, my sister just passed away from cancer. She had leukemia. And I'll never forget this because we would sit through cancer treatments and what got us through those was watching you in Star Trek. And then all of a sudden, spontaneously, people just shouted out. They didn't even have the microphone. They were just like, you know, you got me through the death of my father or my parents were divorced and what got me through my childhood was watching, you know, Mm -hmm. if that's not a religion, I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I disclaimer, 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 Mm -hmm. like Christianity is so great and all that, but it it was a really powerful testament to how powerful identities can be for us. It was, it was really cool. Mm -hmm. It was really touching. Alter Guild is hosted by Matthew Ian Fleming, Miriam Samuelson-Roberts, Meta Herrett Carlson, and me, Derek Tronsgaard. We want to say a huge thank you to Emmy Kegler for joining us this week. Emmy has a new book coming out, One Coin Found, How God's Love Stretches to the Margins. Her book comes out in April, but you can pre-order it today on Amazon or wherever else fine books are sold. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a review on iTunes, tell a friend about the show, or hit us up on social media at AlterGuild. That's A-L-T-E-R. We'll be back next week for another episode. And in the meantime, listen, love, serve, and alter.